This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hello, everyone. I'm Bev Jones, and I want to welcome you to Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. The workplace trend we discussed today is how the pandemic, and maybe the state of the world, has made us more aware of the importance of compassion and more thoughtful about how to support our colleagues as well as our friends and family. Our guest is Earl Johnson, a founder of the Spiritual Care Function in the American Red Cross. He's an expert in psychological first aid, and he understands the challenges of supporting both victims and first responders after a major disaster. Earl will share tips from his book, Finding Comfort During Hard Times. He'll talk about how we can support people who experience trauma, whether they're struggling with massive events or everyday kinds of crises. Earl will also share stories from his own fascinating career. From his time at Yale Divinity School, his jobs often focused on caring for others. But there were other gigs as well, including in the fashion industry where he was a top model. Earl, thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, Delighted to be with you. Well, we always have a good conversation, and I'm so pleased that today we get to share it with all of the Jazzed About Work listeners. You're always full of good advice, but also interesting stories. And today, of course, what we are hoping is that you're going to share some advice from your wonderful book, Finding Comfort During Hard Times. But here on Jazzed About Work, we love career stories, and yours is pretty fascinating. So before we get into the book and to talking about difficult times, could you tell us a bit about your career history? How how did things get started, maybe as far back as when you were in divinity school? Well, I've always been drawn to a career in public service, and um, I was a political science major in college, and uh, that was the late 60s, early 70s, so it was a time of all these traumatic assassinations and uh, civil rights marches and demonstrations, and of course, Vietnam. And um, it it just seemed to me that I needed uh, something more uh, than going to law school and following that track. Um, my lottery number was also three in the draft. Um, oh. And so... I had a, a, a chance to go to divinity school as an alternative and instead of studying civil law, um, uh, to study ecclesiastical law, just to uh, find out um, why, you know, what were the uh, foundational underpinnings of all this um, action and um, uh, conflict. And, and so uh, um, I was accepted uh, to Yale uh, and uh, uh, was there at a time of, of, of great social action, uh, gospels and uh, classmates and uh, professors. And so uh, 
um, divinity school fit right in into what I uh, had hoped it would be, which was to lay the foundations for my future career and and life. And um, al- although it wasn't a at that time a, a political one. So from there, did you go into active ministry? I did, and only because it was the most challenging, because at that time, people were far more interested in the streets and and uh, working uh, in uh, community-wide uh, ministries. And I thought, um, with all my background, I had a lot of international travel uh, as a part of my divinity school studies, because I was uh, all the global conferences on environment and population studies and food scarcity were going on in the in the 70s. And so I thought, well, let's go home and see if I can translate all these, uh, all my knowledge and experiences into local ministry in a local church and to see whether I would be accepted and whether I would have the skills um, uh, to translate what I'd experienced and learned um, into uh, being a youth minister, communicating with young people. And so that was my first job. Um, But, you know, my dad was an auto mechanic and my mother helped him and both were in helping professions. And so being in a local church was not foreign because I'd always grown up in the church. Um, but both my late sister and I ended up in helping professions. And so for the first six years outside of seminary, I was in uh, parishes in Missouri and in a large uh, parish on Long Island in Manhasset, um, where um, um, I served for six years. So um, um, that was the foundations, and that was the challenge. Well, my recollection is that sometime maybe after those six years, you made a shift and you went to more graduate study at that great journalism program at the University of Missouri. Is that right? That's correct. And you see, for me, that was the local school because I was born in Columbia, Missouri. And it it, sort of by osmosis, I was drawn to that school because um, whether I was in divinity school or whether I was in the local parish or, or wherever, it was all about telling the story and how to communicate and what better place I thought uh, to do that than in uh, journalism school. And I was originally in, interested in photojournalism because a picture tells a thousand words. And, and I used to do these photography shows in the parish um, as a way of communicating um, the gospel and the social gospel. So, uh, um, you know, it, it was an opportunity for me to, to develop new skills in, in uh, how to communicate the message. And uh, um, I, I am uh, still thrilled that I had that opportunity to, to study uh, at the University of Missouri. Well, I know you still use your storytelling skills because you've written a, a lovely book and I've read um, other pieces that you've written, columns and so forth. But 
did it um, lead to another career when you when you finished the journalism program? What did you do next? Well, it it did, and um, uh, I basically was dealing with my own um, identity, who I was as a person, and so. Um, I didn't want to come out while I was in the parish, but at the same time, um, until I uh, took care of myself and, uh, you know, started my, my journey as a gay man, um, I, I really couldn't take care of other people uh, because if I didn't know who I was and if I was um, telling a false narrative, uh, then that would lead to me being perceived as inauthentic and, and, uh, and that would be doing an, an, an injustice. And uh, um, I thought by helping people, I could still do that. But um, until I discovered who I was, um, I worked a lot in um, fashion and, and and studying nonverbal communication as a fashion model for uh, almost twelve years, and and that gave me the platform of both celebrity uh, um, to say not what only the message was, but but why do we listen to a, some messengers more than others, and um, uh, it. It, it was an issue too, also of, of trust and and who do we trust to tell the story? And um, is it someone who knows who they are? Um, and is it someone who can um, comfort uh, specialized populations or uh, communities? And uh, so uh, I had an opportunity to do that and I, I landed upon it and... Uh, uh, that allowed me to make the transition uh, back into chaplaincy um, because in fashion, so many of my friends uh, had AIDS and they were dying and um, um, I wanted to support them. But at that time, religion had been weaponized and um, uh, people were being condemned because of their illness and, and being defined as bad people. And that wasn't uh, my belief and, and how I understood uh, the gospel and religion. And, and so uh, this whole idea of comforting people, um, uh, you know, you had to be authentic and you had to know who you were in order to, to be a good listener and support others. So um, that's a little bit of a roundabout way of saying uh, I had a very eclectic uh, uh, past, which uh, 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 made me the person that I am today and uh, helped me both communicate verbally and non-verbally to those whom I was trying to support. Well, as I recall hearing, um, you weren't just in the fashion industry, but you had some pretty marvelous experiences um, during those years. You were like a, a top model in Madrid with working with very high-end um, fashion, and then you went to New York. So I'm guessing it was in New York where you started really grappling with AIDS and with your identity and how to return to um, a caretaking role. Is that right? 
Exactly. And uh, being a model allowed me to be anonymous because, you know, uh, whatever the client, uh, you know, what image they thought. And, you know, um, I was sort of the basic 40 regular uh, guy next door type. Um, But I ended up uh, at Ralph Lauren for four years and Uh, at Armani and Xenia, and I had top clients, and I was anonymous. Nobody knew that I was a a minister or a a future chaplain, Um, and uh, I could circulate in there and also offer support and counsel um, to those who were starting to deal with illness and becoming infected and uh, and dying um, isolated and alone and under great uh, judgment and punishment by uh, both the church and their families. I know from a, a recent uh, conversation that that you um, and your partner were very much part of um, caring for people during those horrible age years in New York. And then um, things got better with that crisis. Is is that when you went to the Red Cross or were there other stops along the way? Well, um, I, I ended up um, as the Protestant chaplain at Cabrini Medical Center in lower Manhattan for five years. And that um, was about the time of protease inhibitors coming in and uh, AIDS no longer being a death sentence. But my sister had a rare form of cancer. And because of that, uh, I could no longer go into a hospice or hospital room and see a middle-aged woman with cancer without thinking of my sister. So um, um, I... Um, heard about this group at Red Cross that responded uh, to catastrophic disasters. And I was always looking for the next challenge and the next step. And and so um, after 9-11, I had moved to Washington, D.C. on September 9th, 2001, and was at Washington Hospital Center when the plane hit the Pentagon. And uh, of course, it was quite chaotic um, at the medical center because the burn victims from the Pentagon were being taken there uh, for their care. And um, Red Cross kept uh, calling um, in, a, in a very subliminal way of, of saying if I could no longer um, be successful as a hospital chaplain, I could work as a disaster chaplain because there was this team of of people that could transfer their um, skill set from being with people who were actively dying in the hospital to people who were dealing with catastrophic loss and unanticipated death um, uh, in the disaster field. And these were human-caused disasters, but also um, mass fatality hurricanes. You, you never thought that 1,700 people could die, uh, and then Hurricane Katrina came along. And 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 next month we have the anniversary of the 10 years of the Joplin tornado that killed 562 people, and these 
their families and their loved ones need support. And um, this whole idea of disaster chaplaincy uh, became a new frontier. So uh, um, happily, I was able to transfer my skill set to Red Cross, uh, where I served for the next 10 years until retirement, um, training, recruiting, teaching uh, healthcare chaplains uh, how to work in disaster. And when you say chaplains, you really are talking about people from many different religions, right? Exactly. And um, a board-certified chaplain um, has about a, a program of training called clinical pastoral education, and they have over 1,600 hours on how to be with people from all backgrounds and all faith groups or people who claim no faith. And um, uh, the chaplain's training teaches you how not only how to be with people from different faiths, but also how to support them um, and also how to take care of yourself because um, uh, these are extreme disasters and these are those rare, unique mass fatality disasters that unfortunately are happening with more regularity um, in the recent past um, with school shootings and uh, catastrophic natural disasters. And, and it just, it, it, it gave me the opportunity to um, support people who have been impacted by these catastrophic disasters. Well, this brings us to your book, which I think is is such a it, it it's a lovely book, but it's it's extremely practical. It's a how to uh, book, which I think um, can be useful in a lot of situations. One of the things that I like about it that makes it practical is that you give suggestions about offering comfort maybe on the first day after a disaster and then at the end of the first week and then at the first month and after a year or more. You kind of break it down into periods in which the need for comfort or the way you deliver it may change. Can you kind of talk us through how that progression goes from day one to to maybe you know months and months after the event has occurred? Sure. Um, during the first day, um, disaster victims and survivors, they're the primary need. They they need accurate information and reassurance. They need to know if the disaster is over. They need to know if their loved ones are safe. Um, so even before giving them a cup of coffee or a cot in a, a shelter, um, they need that information so that, that they know if, if you can communicate accurately and reliability, uh, reliably um, um, the survival and um, uh, welfare of their loved ones, but you're basically meeting their emergency needs and you're trying to start a conversation with them even though some of them may be very traumatized, but you need to be a non-anxious presence. You need to actively listen. You need to assess, you know, what do they need next? Um, You need to connect them with their loved ones. And you have to be a good host. You have to practice that ministry of hospitality. 
in the first week, you're getting along to funerals and memorial services. And perhaps some people want to go see uh, the site where their loved one perished and organizing that. And and if the disaster is ongoing, if if people haven't been recovered or found, um, it, it it may um, dwell. It may uh, carry on a, a longer period of time. So, um, offer to help people. Um, you know, again, you're listening. Offer to give them a break if they're sitting with a loved one, because you also want to minimize the exposure to the trauma and and listening to, to traumatic stories over and over a time uh, does occur in the first week because people have a profound need to tell their stories of survival and loss. In the first month. Um, you ask questions about what was your life before the disaster, and you try to help people um, work through the meaning of the disaster event and also the feeling. And, and you also need to know that if you're over your head, that there may be a need for a professional mental health counselor uh, to help them through their trauma. But in that first month, depression sets in. Um, and so you need to be kind and patient uh, because grief is irrational and you have to be, you know, expect anything. And then this whole sense of loss, it accumulates and you hear other people's losses about other people's losses. And then we come to the first year when you have the year of first, like the first anniversary of, of, of the disaster or the first Christmas or the, the first wedding anniversary, you know, after the loss of a loved one or a spouse. And it's important to commemorate and to remember um, these anniversaries and, and to visit the cemetery um, or even, you know, plant a tree or help a child or uh, take a walk with someone to help them remember because um, that, that people, just because they're, they die, it doesn't mean they're, they're forever gone. Um, and sometimes people you have the disaster define them. And, you know, they're a parent of a Parkland High School shooting student or a, a, a parent of someone lost in, in the, the TWA 800 plane crash. And that's a part of their identity forever. And, and there's that fine line between supporting someone uh, through long-term, uh, their long-term needs and survival, but, but also building resilience. So um, at different stages of disaster, um, you, you may be dealing with a lot of different issues. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. Are you ready to make a difference in the world? The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University can give you the skills to do just that. The school offers a multidisciplinary approach where public policy, environmental studies, and entrepreneurship come together to educate tomorrow's leaders. 
Learn more about the Masters in Public Administration or Environmental Studies by visiting ohio.edu backslash Voinovich School. So let me ask, um, I I know you uh, helped to create and and to develop the function of uh, uh, psychological care, spiritual care at uh, the Red Cross. And you were, so you were guiding chaplains, you were guiding people who were caregivers. The way you describe it, it sounds to me that it's pretty exhausting for the caregiver. You have to manage yourself. So you're that calm, compassionate presence, but that takes a lot of energy. It's not easy, I would think, day after day on a disaster site. How do you take care of the caregivers in those first days? How do you take care of yourself? Well, no person is unaffected by disaster, and and the responder, the the chaplain, is not immune to to secondary trauma. But that's where management comes in, and and managing your team um, so that. Uh, they don't have um, abundant exposure and minimize the exposure um, uh, and management is sacred uh, uh, so that you can rotate your team or, or, or um, uh, help them uh, process what they're doing, but also spelling them. One of the things about COVID uh, as a disaster is that we are uh, simply... Uh, burning through a whole generation of first responders, doctors, nurses, EMTs, chaplains, um, who don't haven't had that opportunity uh, for self-care like they need it because they've been overwhelmed by the disaster of COVID. And, and so we may lose a number of people from the helping professions just because of their inability or the time that they haven't been able because of their occupational stresses and pressures um, to to uh, take time off or, or practice self care. So um, it, it you know it, it it's one moment at a time, but also that whole idea that. You really need to take care of people in your care, but you also need to take care of yourself. Because if you don't put on your oxygen mask first, like they say on the airlines, then you're not going to be able to put the oxygen mask on on uh, another. So for, for people who are in the workplace, who are in organizations where colleagues have um, suffered trauma during COVID or from other awful events or um, caregivers who are in the environment who are part of the structure have are just worn out. Are there things that the ordinary person can do to, to support colleagues and friends around us who, who are struggling, who don't seem to be resilient after going through a terrible time? Well, yes, we can be a good neighbor and and we can 
um, start the conversation with them because if we know they're having trouble and they are isolated, which uh, and angry, uh, you know, and 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 grief stricken, uh, they may not have anyone to talk to. And being a good neighbor, just starting that conversation of uh, it is it's it's so basic it's so primary um, in reaching out to someone who is um, suffering and and you may not be able to mad, wave a magic wand and simply make everything go away um, or everything to be better um, but at least uh, the this aspect of collegiality and you're also helping reinforce community and you're building community one person at a time um, be, that has been lost because of COVID. And um, so reaching out, um, but understanding if, if, if someone uh, is, is really needing... Um, extra care, or um, you may also suggest um, speaking to a professional counselor. Um, but for the most part, um, that being a good neighbor and practicing hospitality really goes a long way um, into reaching out to, to someone who's struggling. Yes, I think that's so true. Well, I want to change gears just a little bit before we finish talking about the book. Because um, one thing you all also talk about is how to um, prepare for disasters. It's something that organizations are much more aware of than there used to be. But say we have listeners out there who have maybe a small business or they work from home or they're um, running a distant uh, operation of a, a bigger entity. How, how do you start thinking about preparing for disaster? What if... What do you do if you think maybe I need a plan? Where do you begin? Well, that's just it. You have to to make a plan, but it's an uphill battle because uh, the New York Times had a story that like a third of the population, a third of the uh, people involved in 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 society and business and 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 every place, they're resistant to preparedness because they think the government is going to take care of them, or they think that you know uh, the divine uh, God will come down and and uh, you know at the last minute and 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 take care of them, and that's not necessarily real. And even with respect with with your faith tradition. Um, it's really important for you to do your part. So make a plan, uh, take disaster training, even Disaster 101. Uh, it's offered by the Red Cross um, because this knowledge lessens anxiety. Knowing you have a plan, knowing where to meet your family if, if your house is destroyed in a second location, we'll meet at grandma's. Um, uh, you know, building an emergency kit, having a flashlight, having water, um, you know, uh, that basic aspects of preparedness, um, it, it, it goes so far and, and to reassuring people that, you know, disasters happen, but if a disaster happens to me, I'm going to be ready and I'm not going to overly worry, but I, I am going to be reassured um, uh, that um, uh, 
I know who uh, is going to do what in a disaster, and I know what government can do. I know what the private sector can do, and I'm prepared. Um, I don't just let some hap- something happen to me and, and not be prepared. I think that that um, focus on preparing can be helpful in a career sense, even when we're not talking about a massive disaster. Uh, many of us go through our career worrying about, you know, what if something happens to the boss? What if they don't like what I'm doing? And I always, when I'm working with clients, I always like to encourage them to have a plan B, to to know that if a, a career disaster happens, you lose a job that you love or, you know, something else goes wrong. It's always good to be thinking about other possibilities. And it doesn't have to be a very um, complete plan. Often a plan um, what you really need is a starting point, those first few steps that you're going to have uh, already organized just in case. Does does that resonate with you? Oh, it's so true, so true, because um, unemployment and underemployment are very violent um, conditions um, and states of being. And, and um, just not expecting change to take place and not having a plan B. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's not that you're unhappy. You're, you're basically doing this, um, for self-preservation and because to prepare is to care and you care about, um, yourself, you care about your family, you care about other people. And, and so, um, you know, the, these aspects of, uh, unemployment or underemployment, um, it, you need to be prepared for, for that eventuality as well today. And, and there are very few things that are sure. And, and, uh, and there's that knowledge that you have the backup plan really turns down the anxiety and it really does help you sleep and it, it helps you thrive. So um, uh, that's a very, very important message. Well, I'm guessing, given the year or so that we've all had, that we have listeners out there who are feeling like comfort is something that they would like to experience today. Do you have any simple suggestions? Say somebody's out there and feeling like, I wish somebody would reach out and comfort me, but we can sometimes help uh, ourselves in seeking comfort, can't we? Do you have suggestions about how we might do that? Well, it's important to tell the truth, first of all. And, and when you're comforting someone and that need for basic information, tell the truth and keep your promises. Um, because the, you know, whether I was teaching public speaking and at community college in New York, or whether I was teaching how to comfort people at the Red Cross, um, you know, the, there are so many basic foundations to supporting others and comforting others, but it's basic trust 
is the basic underpinning. And knowing that someone is safe with you, that you don't have an ulterior agenda, that you are simply there for them and you're there for yourself. But being able to separate those two roles and to, and to put on those different hats, um, it's not just for the professional, it's, it's for the neighbor as well. And uh, I think that's something to be mindful of. But, um, you know, disasters are so complex and comforting people. Um, it it's not just a meatloaf or comfort food it, or, or or giving someone um, a, a warm blanket or a shawl. Um, um, it, you know, it, it it it's more than that, but it's but it's all these things uh, combined, and and you have to be able. Um, to use your common sense and be able, be intuitive and, and, uh, understanding that, um, if, if you're going to reach out, uh, to someone, follow through and, uh, and, and, and make sure that they're safe with you and, and, uh, you're a person who can be trusted and are a person of your word. So it sounds like whether you're trying to offer comfort or you're feeling the need for comfort, it starts with reaching out to another person and trying to be honest and finding a ways to connect, even if it's in um, a small way. It's 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 all about uh, people connecting with people is the starting point. Is that right? Absolutely. It's all about connectivity and networking and and things that we know um, deep down that are true and 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 you know you're qualified you know you have common sense you know you have skill sets and trainings and you know you have certain abilities because you may be a parent you may be a spouse or you may live by yourself and are independent and self-reliant but it is that connectivity because we live in community and and uh, we aren't separate and and uh, we need to know how to deal with differences with respect and honesty but that connectivity is is at the base of community and that's who we whom we were created to be uh, persons who live uh, in in um, community with one another. Well, uh, another good starting point for people who are thinking about these issues of comfort, of course, is your book. Uh, and Earl, congratulations. I know that um, it's uh, received notice over the last year as a kind of a leading book on health and wellness. And um, uh, supporting other people. So congratulations for that. I, I also noticed on social media and, and different places that it feels like uh, you now have the book available in multiple forms. Um, so if people are looking for finding comfort during hard times, what are their options for um, absorbing this content? What, what's, what's available? 
Well, it's it's available in hard copy um, or as an ebook, a, a Kindle, and it's also um, on Audible. Um, I know a lot of people uh, listen to books as they drive between places, and it's it's also an audio book, um, a CD. So there are four different formats. I'm I'm happy to say, um, and um, uh, one should be perfect for you um, because I I really hope. Um, humbly, uh, in some small way, uh, that my experiences and, and suggestions will help each of you comfort one another and yourself. Well, I'm sure this book has the potential for helping many people experience and offer comfort. So, Earl, it's a pleasure um, talking with you. I am always fascinated by not just the steps along the way in your career, but the honesty, the authenticity in which you talk about your own stories. And I, I've, I've loved having you here today. Thank you so much. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. Today, we've been talking with Earl Johnson about how to offer comfort when people are facing hard times. I'm your host, Bev Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. Today's tip is that when you want to support a person who's struggling, sometimes the best approach is to reach out, show up, and then just be ready to listen. And thank you for listening today. If you enjoy our show, we'd love it if you would give us a five-star rating or just tell your friends. Thank you.